This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This week, can this predator reboot succeed where the others failed? Do you have a plan? Ex sniper with PTSD and a team that's mental? You're insane, right? A simple favour pits good girl Anna Kendrick against bad girl Blake Lively. Did you just take my picture? Erase it. I guess I'm probably not the kind of person you're normally friends with. Oh, you do not want to be friends with me. Trust me. And Ladies in Black remembers when Australia opened up a bit. I won't know anyone. I think they'll all be continentals. Do you speak English? Of course. And Hungarian and German. And some French and Russian. A drink? Hello, I'm Simon Morris. These days, one of the very few rules in the movie business is don't expect anything. Unless you think I'm being defeatist and pessimistic, I'm simply saying that you never know. Sometimes the least enticing-looking project may turn out to be a winner. This year alone, who expected much from the confessions of a long-forgotten bad sport called I, Tonya? Or from a French comedy with the least imaginative name imaginable, C'est la vie? Not to mention a comedy called The Death of Stalin. We need change. Well, if you can mobilise first. Oh, seems to be me. Sneaky little shit. The race has started. We need to start putting together a plan. How can you run and plot at the same time? I have fond memories of a comedy with a very unpromising pedigree. It was called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It was made by one Shane Black, who made all those lethal weapon action movies back in the day, and it starred an actor long dismissed as box office poison in 2005. His name was Robert Downey Jr. Where is the girl? You put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah, there was like an 8% chance. Hey, who taught you math? Of course, the rest is history. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang bucked all the predictions. It reignited Downey's career. And later, he and Shane Black were reunited in one of the best of the Marvel Comics movies, Iron Man 3. So what I'm saying is it's forgivable that a new film from Shane Black might excite a little anticipation, despite the don't-expect-anything rule. Predators just don't sit around making hats out of rib cages. They conquered space. But that's not what's on the horizon. Should I be worried? The Predator is the film, a remake of a remake of a cult favourite that actually featured a young Shane Black as an actor. 
What could possibly go wrong? And what about an auspicious thriller in the Gone Girl, Girl on the Train mode, starring two favourite actresses, tough, smart Blake Lively and plucky, innocent Anna Kendrick? J'adore mon poisson rouge. Every time we do this, I feel so high tone. <laughs> Want to trade confessions? No, no. Come on. What's the wildest thing you've ever done? A Simple Favour also boasts one of the smartest directors of women's pictures right now, Paul Feig. He even had the good manners to avoid putting the word girl in the title. Well, it's hard not to expect something from that film, just as it is for a movie version, I thought, of a popular Australian musical made by mostly New Zealand talent. Good afternoon, ladies. You must be the new jeune fille. Some help I can use during this season. Who's that? Magda, one of them refos. Refugees. Migrants. But it turns out that Ladies in Black, the movie, is based on the popular book, but not the Tim Finn musical. And despite the best efforts of veteran director Bruce Beresford, it might have worked better with a few songs to cover the lack of drama. But this week I tried not to be disappointed, particularly by The Predator. What's on the ship? The original Predator, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, came out at a good time for Look Out Behind You monster movies, following in the footsteps of films like Jaws and Alien. It was cheap, it was direct, and it knew exactly what it was doing. It sent a bunch of macho men into the jungle and then picked them off one by one. It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all going to die. But this time... It's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we can kill it. A straightforward action movie like Predator looks easy, which it is until you start trying to repeat it, or worse, top it. Over the years, the horrendously ugly Predator has been revived, either alone or in tandem with the Alien franchise, but seldom able to recapture that first fine, careless rapture. Until now, maybe. Come on, man. I had a run in with a space alien. <laughs> this guy is crazier than the rest of us. <laughs> now being under the wing of one-time Wonder Boy Shane Black, who kicks off the remake, reboot, sequel, a bit of all the above, with a familiar-looking jungle. A spaceship crashes near a squad of American commandos led by one McKenna. Tell me about the mission. Did you see anything unusual? Like an alien, you mean? He saw something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did McKenna see something? The authorities think he did, and they bring him in for questioning. He fends them off with a sort of cool nonchalance we'd expect from a hero in a Shane Black movie before being dumped on a bus. A bus full of badass crazies. Welcome to the movie bus. McKenna. Nebraska Williams. That's Coyle. That's Lynch. With Merch. Why are you here? I don't think you believe me. And the only reason they're not called the Dirty Dozen is that there's just five of them, but they're clearly the sort of people you'd want when you're out hunting predators, preferably walking in front of you. What the fuck was that? That's the thing that killed my men. 
alien. Sooner or later, we knew the Predator was going to arrive on the scene, but first we have to slow down the action for a few subsidiary elements. For a start, we need a hot woman biologist, someone who looks good wielding a firearm while mopping up any exposition that might be needed. I think they're attempting hybridization. They're upgrading on every plant they visit. There are also the mandatory shady government figures with a vested interest in capturing predators alive with a view to inevitably turning them into weapons in some way. And they're delighted when they apparently succeed. Predators that exploit weakness, tracks its prey like a game, seems to enjoy it. That's not a predator, that's a sports hunter. Well, we took a vote. Predator's cooler, right? But, of course, it gets away. It wouldn't be a movie if a predator could be captured by a bunch of guys in white overalls. However, Shane hasn't finished weaving his magic because the captured, now-escaped predator isn't the big bad one. There's another one, twice as big, and it's right behind you. What's the big one? What's the big one, Doc? Is that like the male? What are they hunting each other now? The two rival predators are both looking for something, and wouldn't you know it, that something is currently sitting in McKenna's basement where his cute son Rory is playing with it while Mum makes pancakes upstairs. Now, there's one major difference between this Predator and the original hit version, apart from costing about ten times as much. This one keeps piling on the plot. But if there's one thing a scary monster sneaking up on you movie doesn't need, it's much more plot than that. Do you have a plan? Ex-sniper with PTSD and a team that's mental? You're insane, right? You also don't need this many confusing characters. You need about six or seven, enough to invite the regular question, who's next, and a twist at the end when the hero finds a way to avoid being supper. We need to know if you pose a threat. We're assassins. Isn't posing a threat kind of the point? As George Lucas discovered when he made the notorious Star Wars prequels, you can overthink these things. It's enough there's a predator and sufficient prey to occupy an hour and a half before it's defeated. I'm not saying a scary monster movie has to be stupid. I am saying it has to be simple. I think you know what is on the ship. (laughs) The ultimate predators. Ever since Hitchcock, in fact, I'm sure long before Hitch, but he's the one you'd think of, the secret of a cool, smart thriller has been to regularly wrong-foot the audience. It's called a mystery for a reason, and there's been a run of them recently, mostly written by and for women. She's an enigma, my wife. You can get close to her. You can never quite reach her. She's like a beautiful ghost. Did you just take my picture? Erase it. I guess I'm probably not the kind of person you're normally friends with. Oh, you do not want to be friends with me. Trust me. 
Gone Girl, The Girl on the Train, even the Fifty Shades of Grey books and films were based on the sudden switch. What's going on? And now here's A Simple Favour, based on a best-selling book by first-time novelist Darcy Bell. I'll warn you, you go poking around in her past, you're going to find something that is terrifying. She was not a normal person like you or me. I've never seen such a beautiful girl want to be so invisible. We meet Stephanie, played by the endearingly eager-to-please Anna Kendrick, who produces a vlog, a video blog, called Hi Moms, offering other mothers handy tips and recipes. But Stephanie has a darker story to share today. A few weeks ago, I met Emily, this wonderful, elegant person. Our sons brought us together, actually. Stephanie's little boy, Miles, has made friends with Nicky, the son of the cool, sophisticated Emily, played by cool, sophisticated Blake Lively, who's channelling every femme fatale from every film noir you've ever seen. Come here, little dude. Can me and Miles have a play date today? Your drink? Does your kid drink? Maybe? I mean, it's never too early to start teaching. I think you're joking, but great. J'adore mon poisson. Emily overwhelms Stephanie and, in short order, starts taking advantage of her, particularly when it comes to looking after Nicky. So Stephanie doesn't think anything of it when Emily asks her to mind him for a day or two. Stephanie, I need your help. Uh, are you OK? I'm fine, but I, I do need just a, a simple favour. Can you come over? Yeah. But the simple favour turns mysterious when Emily vanishes without a trace. No one knows where she's gone, not even her husband, Sean, played by the dashing Henry Golding, who's already established his old-fashioned movie star credentials, playing a similar character in Crazy Rich Asians. I smell her, Sean. I smell her perfume like a ghost. It's just you being paranoid. I saw my mum. She told me to say hi to Stephanie. So, what's happened to Emily, and is she what we think she is? Well, it's no spoiler to suggest that it's pretty clear she's not. From the first moment she starts knocking back litres of martinis while in charge of an infant, to ferreting out poor Stephanie's darkest secrets, Emily, as played by Blake Lively, is born to be bad. Were you aware that he took out an extra $4 million life insurance policy on Emily before she disappeared? People do terrible things for their own reasons. A simple favour is certainly a change of pace for director Paul Feig, best known for running a tight ship on female-skewed comedies like Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters. As the story continues to pile twist upon twist, Feig does a good job, particularly punctuating the film with Stephanie's video blog. Five days ago, Emily went missing. I'm realising I don't know her as well as I thought I did. Emily, if you're out there, we're all really worried. It's an elegant way to illustrate the old unreliable narrator gimmick. Not just bad Emily, but supposedly good Stephanie have more than their share of secrets. But one of the occupational hazards of a thriller, I'm afraid, is the overuse of twists and reversals. Everybody has a dark side. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. J'adore mon poisson rouge Il m'appelle jour et nuit Et tout 
fatally, a simple favour not only includes some pretty hard-to-swallow plot twists, but some near-fatal tonal ones too. From social satire to murder mystery to black melodrama to near-farce is a bridge or two too far. The cast is great, but the film eventually turns too self-consciously cute for its own good. They thought you knew more than you were letting on. Ladies in Black by Australian novelist Madeline Sinjin has become a hit twice recently. It was turned into a successful and award-winning musical with songs by Tim Finn, no less, and now it's a non-musical film written and directed by veteran Aussie filmmaker Bruce Beresford. Who's going to be at Magda's party? Are you meeting someone? No, I won't know anyone. I think they'll all be continentals. Do you speak English? Of course. And Hungarian, and German, and some French, and Russian. A drink? Well, the book has been a big seller in Australia. It's been reprinted here twice, and it's now been reprinted for the third time with a film still on the cover. When it was first published in the 90s, Madeline Sinjin was living in London then. I knew her in Sydney when we were at university together. And she wrote the book in London in the 1990s. And it was drawn to my attention by Clive James, who reviewed it for a magazine. And he said, do you remember Madeline Sinjin? She was at university with us. And I said, yes. And he said, she's just written this absolutely wonderful book. He said, it's terribly funny. It conjures up the era absolutely superbly, and it's got wonderful dialogue. And I rushed out and bought it, and I bought an option on it, thinking, you know, that it would be very easy to get the money to make the film, but in fact it took a very long time. I just thought it was a very engaging story, you know, this young girl who goes to get a holiday job at the department store. And you see, the theme of it is the effect on a lot of Australians, sort of on a very Anglo-Saxon Australian family and a group of people, and the effect on them of all these migrants arriving from Europe and them having to adjust to, you know, different ways of eating and even thinking and attitudes. And I thought that Madeline handled that in the book very, very deftly and with a lot of humour. There's a, a word that I'd never heard before, which is refos. Yeah, refos. <laughs> well, that was the word of that period. I can remember that distinctly. I remember my mother referring to migrants who moved into houses in our street in Western Sydney, and she referred to them as refos, refugees. It wasn't meant to be offensive. It was just, you know, <laughs> it was just the way Australians put O on the end of everything. I remember at school, just about everybody's name had an O on the end. People used to call me Bruso. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to suggest that the film is a sort of a love letter to Sydney in the late 50s, but it's a slightly critical love letter too, isn't it? Because it was extremely white and Anglo at that time. Oh, well, it was. I mean, the migrants that arrived from Europe in the 50s, well, they came in the 40s too, but a lot in the 50s, especially after the revolutions against the communists from Eastern Europe, they changed the country an enormous amount. I mean, look how cosmopolitan it is here now. I'd never heard of olive oil until I was at university and I had friends whose parents were European uh, migrants to Australia. And I remember going to, to lunch at someone's place and they had this funny oil, olive oil. I'd never heard of it. I mean, how accurate a picture of Australia and Australians is the film? Because, I mean, there are some parts where you think, I can't believe that people could have been quite as 
naive as that. It's a pretty accurate picture of what it was like then, because I remember it well. I mean, it was 1960, it was the year I first went to university in Sydney. Let's talk a little bit about the characters. It's essentially, as you say, it's about a, a department store, which in this film is called Goods, but it's you know based very closely, I imagine, on David Jones, I'm thinking. Yeah, yes, it is. It's based on David Jones. Madeline Sinjin, who wrote the book, had a holiday Christmas job at David Jones when she was a student. And interestingly, the lead character, or one of the lead characters, Lisa, uh, gets a holiday job at, uh, at Christmas at Goods. Tell us a little bit about her. I mean, Lisa's based on Madeline herself. And then, you know, Lisa's father doesn't want her to go to university, thinks it's a waste of time for a girl. I think a lot of these things happen to Madeline, or that she observed them happening to her friends. I mean, the attitudes of that period are, are pretty accurately portrayed in the film. Then you get Pat, who's married to somebody who's from the country, and there's a big snobbery thing about in Sydney, I think, about people who came from the country as well, wasn't there? Well, the, the country, he's a bit of a hick. He's sort of a bit out of place. I mean, he's the one character who's shown in the film as being sexually very inhibited, which is sort of ruining their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I think Madeline based all of the characters on people that she knew. Some of the people I've met, you know, I met a very elderly lady who was the original character of Magda. Magda's the uh, woman from Eastern Europe who's running a fashion section of the department store. She's the most sophisticated person in the shop as far as I can see. She is. Well, I mean, she, you know, she claimed to have worked in Paris uh, in a fashion store, which probably wasn't true, but she told them that. And she was certainly very, uh, very sophisticated by the standards of all the ladies working there. Most of them were just, you know, fairly ordinary girls who had no uh, university education. I think if there's one character who possibly sort of sums up the character of Australia itself, it might be Faye, who is somebody who left school very early... Well, that's another character. I mean, that's a key character played by Rachel Taylor, who's a, absolutely a lovely girl and a wonderful actress. She's rather wary about meeting a, a, a foreigner, but against her rather better judgment, she starts going out with this Hungarian and falls madly in love with him. The thing that surprised me most about the film, actually, Bruce, is just what a sweet mood there is. I think that was a factor that really attracted me to the book in the first place. I thought it's so nice, it's so sunny and so optimistic about life in general. One question I have to ask, actually, Bruce, is was there any sort of a film industry in Australia at that stage? There really wasn't, no, no. Because I associate you with so much of the rebirth of the Australian film industry, right, going right back. That kicked off in the 70s. It kicked off with a film called The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. That's right. Well, you see, I came back from England when I heard that the government was setting up a sort of funding system to make Australian films. I came rushing back with a Barry McKenzie script that I'd written in London with Barry Humphreys. And I said, look, you've got to give us the money to make this film. And they were all a bit hesitant, but they said, you haven't directed a feature film before. And I said, well, nobody has. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well give me the money. And we made it very, very cheaply, but it was, it was good fun and it was quite successful. Usually successful in Australia. And I have to say that New Zealand has a connection with the film too because it was your first film, but it was also the first paying gig for an expat Kiwi called John Clark. That's it. I met John got a job on the film in a small role. 
and Barry and I became very friendly with him and did everything we could to uh, encourage him and uh, st stayed friends with him uh, right up until, uh, tragically, he died last year. A very brilliant, a very nice man. Bruce Beresford, the director of Ladies in Black, a sweet-natured love letter to Sydney just before it turned into the cosmopolitan city it is today. And that brings this show to a close. I'm about to take a few weeks off, so next week Dan Slevin will be filling in for me, followed by, well, a couple of surprises. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join Dan at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.